This is Geek Gab with your host, John and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, March 10th, 2018. And this is, well, it's a very, very, very special episode of the show. But then again, aren't they all? Episode 134. Today, we are going to be talking about Slay the Spire, Wrinkle in Time, and Hurricane Heist. Now, those of you with sharp eyes may have noticed that the earlier description of this show made reference to something that has been eradicated from the title. And so you may be feeling a little bit cheated that the show is not offering you everything we promised. Please don't feel that way. I assure you that in the future, we will bring that back. But for now, we want to talk about the three great subjects we have lined up for you. And to begin with, we want to allow my fellow host, John, broadcasting live from the great Pacific Northwest to say hi. Hi. How are you doing today, Daddy Warping? Uh, it's, it's been a pretty typical Saturday. It's nice. I was recovering from last night's brutal, brutal exertions. Brutal exertions. Are, are you talking about the mental exertions of sitting through uh, March, April season movies? I, 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 I am not going to lie. I watched A Wrinkle in Time last night, and it was very tough to get through. I mean, it, it, it was just literally causing me pain to watch this movie and I wanted to get up and leave so many times but I I, I sat there and I I'm not kidding this was this was just it was a combination of boredom and like high and intense annoyance at some of the creative choices made it it was not a fun experience for me um it was it wasn't even work. It was, it was just enduring, enduring something painful. I like that. Can I quote? Can I quote you on that? It was <laughs> not a fun experience for me. I'm gonna put this on Twitter right now. Exactly. Um, however, you yourself, um, had a great deal of physical exertions last night. Am I correct? Yeah. That's that's right. Instead of doing my due diligence as a Geek Gab co-host and following up on my geek culture, I, I declined to finish my book and I went out dancing instead. I recommend it. And, and you're still doing the Northwestern sw swing or whatever? Yeah, yeah. It's when, a lot of fun. When did you learn to swing dance? I'm just kind of curious. Oh, years ago. That was uh, something my dad uh, sort of... Uh, did and then he brought me and my brother along a couple times and I learned a little bit and then I didn't really do it because uh, I've never been much of a dancer but uh, it was fun to get out and get a little exercise because you know living next to the gym doesn't get me out there often enough but it's fun you get to you know socialize with people yeah I mean and for someone who usually socializes at, at the D&D uh, &D table it's a much different experience it's, it's great 
And see, I'm a, I'm unlike I'm the I'm a typical tabletop gamer type. I I I'm extroverted. I I like to be around other people and 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 interact with them for you know limited amounts of time. But uh, it's a it's a lot of fun for me. So that's why I've always been a tabletop gamer. I've always preferred uh, card games. I've always preferred playing multiplayer games uh, couches couch co-op is the best if you're playing video games but uh you know I've, i spent years playing world of warcraft as you know and it was a lot of fun uh, gathering together with a group of friends every week see i can handle couch co-op um with friends of mine with people i know uh, or my brother i can even handle doing multiplayer with my brother me and my brother used to play multiplayer a lot until i got an xbox one and he was still with the 360 so we can't you know play together anymore but this whole uh multiplayer thing where you get shoved in matches with random people over xbox live i i have never ever ever enjoyed it I've done it here and there for different games. Once in a while, I did some for Left for Dead. Uh, I did some for you know some other games. Uh, was it Gears of War? At one point, I played in that. I played in the beta for Gears of War. I played in the beta for Halo Three, just a little bit, like literally one or two matches, and I just dropped out because I it did not interest me. Yeah, I mean different folks for different strokes that's how it goes right have, have we talked about dead by daylight though yes i think we did wonderful uh, wonderful it's it, you get you get to play as the the killer in a horror movie or on a team as one of the survivors trying to get out <clears throat> one of the victims rather you, you win if you become a survivor I'm, I'm trying to remember now. I remember having had a conversation about it, but I can't remember if it was on the show or while we were talking off the show or while I was talking to our friend Brian off the show. It's yeah, well, well, that's what it is. It's it's a it's a game that is structured on the idea of a horror movie, sort of like Cabin in the Woods, where you got a bunch of people thrown in into a situation, they have to try to escape, and one player is the other team, <laughs> so it's something like four on one, and, so, and one, one one player plays a movie mask serial killer. Really, what you've got is four players and a griefer. Yeah, more or less. It, it's a game that has taken the griefing phenomenon, where multiplayers will go around screwing everybody else, doing bad things. Uh, like in my aforementioned Gears of War experience, I set up a match. And I made the mistake of turning on player damage. Like, you could damage other people on your team. And so as soon as I started the game, the guy who had been ma randomly matched to my team just started shooting me in the back of the head with the shotgun. Um, oh, that's always fun. And, and then after the match was over and I downvoted him or whatever, you know, said, I don't want to play with this guy again, he sends me a friend's request on Xbox Live, and I'm just staring at it like, yeah. Yeah, I want to make permanent contact with you every single time I get online with my box. No, thank you. That's, they should have a translator uh, app for that on the Xbox that says, would you, would you like to accept abuse from this stranger online? Yes, no. 
That's the only reason he was adding you as a friend. The um, but the point was is that that's griefing, right? That's called griefing, and yeah. they have taken the griefing uh, phenomenon. And the Left 4 Dead did it first, obviously, or at least was a real big popularizer of it. I don't know who did it first. Um, I found it's a very dangerous thing to say because everybody's going to point out that, you know, in 1993, some obscure game on the Nintendo 64 actually did it first. But um, I know, I just said, <laughs> people are going to be upset by the year I gave out for those uh, for that console. That's fine. I'm cool with that. But uh, see, I'm griefing the audience now. Yeah. Um, but they've taken that phenomenon and made an entire game around it so the griefers can go play the the killers and uh, head out and just kick the crap out of things. What I thought was most uh, interesting about that game was the difference in perspective between the players and the griefer. What do you mean? Well, the players are all third person. They all play in third person, but the griefer plays in first person which means it's much, much easier to sneak around them. They have oh. a limited angle of view. So it gives the players the advantage in sneaking behind them um, because there's all that area that they can't see. Whereas in a third person, you get some rear, a limited amount, depending on how close or far the camera is away, but you get some amount of being able to see behind you. Yeah, and, th and that's the way they balance around the idea where the monster, the serial killer, <clears throat> is not when you can't beat him in a confrontation. If if he catches up to you, he's going to knock you down and and put you up on a hook and sacrifice you to the dark god or something. Or and, and some heroes can just outright kill other players. Or as heroes, <laughs> I I always think of of Jason Voorhees as the hero. Um. So these, uh, it's I, I think of it as an asymmetrical PvP, where instead of it's five versus five, and it's just every, you know, every every man for himself, or or, or each or team against team, it's uh, you know four on one, where the goals and and the abilities of each player is, is different, or at least between the two sides. You know, one guy is super powerful, but he only plays in first person mode. Um, for me, the coolest thing about the game is the way that they've taken the characters from the the horror movies and made the them play as they act in the movies so freddy's you can play freddy krueger and he needs to hover around one of the victims until they've been fully drawn into the dream and as soon as they've been drawn into the dream he can then kill them and unless they take an action in the dream that would wake them up in the real world, such as running into another one of the players or um, disturbing a power generator, you know, so that they get jolted by electricity, they remain in the dream. They remain asleep. And, and all, the, all the other monsters are like that. They have really cool powers that, uh, that reflect the characters. Brian was telling me, uh, he was playing multiplayer with someone who was just an idiot who kept on running around and getting killed and heading to places they weren't supposed to be and stuff. And finally, they got everything set up and ready to go. And he's about to get in the car and leave. Um, and the idiot runs off and starts doing something completely stupid again. 
So he just left. He just <laughs> drove away because he wasn't going to stand there by the car waiting for the mass murderer to show up and and kill him, chop his head off, stick him on a hook. Yeah, I thought that was a, a wise use of initiative there. It's like, well, you have just decided to die. I am going to allow you to fill the uh, perfect consequences of your decision. Now, you, uh, we were talking about another game before the show, right? What what game? It has nothing to do with online matchmaking. But uh, but I have been playing Slay the Spy recently. It's not a multiplayer game? It is not. See, I assumed when they said it has deck-collecting elements of that, that would tend, you would, like, of necessity imply some sort of playing with other people. Well, let me explain. It is a single-player game, but it's not a deck-collecting element like uh, Magic the Gathering or something like that. Um, It is... All right, let let me ask you this question. What... What what would you say was the biggest game or innovation in board games or card games of the two thousands? Not not this decade, but the last decade. I I don't know. War pig on the spot. It was the, probably the most innovative and groundbreaking game of the two thousands was Dominion. Dominion. Oh yeah. Written by Donald X. Uh, unpronounceable is his last name. Um, it, he invented the deck building game. Slay the, so Slay the Spire is a video game uh, that's in quote unquote early release right now. You can get it on Steam for sixteen bucks. It's a deck building game that is that also plays like a roguelike game. You familiar with roguelikes? Yes, I have played Moria and New Moria and uh, some other roguelike games, or some other and some other games that have claimed to be roguelike. But you're, you're just—it's really confusing to me how they're related to the original Rogue. <laughs> yeah, the 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 one that I'm familiar with uh, that all my buddies in college played is NetHack, which is yeah. just uh, like you know fun ASCII dungeon crawling version. So it's a single player game where you pick a character and your character and and then it becomes like a deck building game. You have an initial deck of cards that uh, some of them are attack and some of them are defense and you march through uh you know you go up to the top of the spire and you know at each level of the of the spire you you know you encounter something or someone or you fight a group of monsters and the fights are done by playing the cards. Uh, just like a deck building game, you have a hand of cards, you play a bunch of cards, you do what they do, and then you throw your hand away and you draw the next five cards, right? And, except that the way through the spire, uh, the monster encounters are unknown, and the encounters that you have are unknown. They're actually marked as question marks on the map. You don't know what you're going to find when you go to that level. And you've got a bunch of branching paths that you can start with. And, and the, the branches all converge at the top of the spire where you fight a big boss. And after every encounter, you usually get a chance to upgrade one of your cards or put a new card in your deck. So it's this, this great merging of those two playstyles where you've got this randomly generated dungeon crawl adventure sort of thing 
where you don't know exactly what you need to prepare for. And the deck building game, where after each level, you get to change the contents of your deck, and that affects the way your deck plays. And if you rise up through, you know, three levels of the spire, I should say three instances of the spire, they get progressively harder, by the time you get to the final boss, your deck is completely different, and it may be extremely powerful and have great card combos where you play 15 cards every turn and, and mm. do you know massive amounts of damage to all the monsters on the screen. Uh, it's it's so you get you get the fun of the deck building game where you get to modify the deck in between each play, and the fun of a roguelike where you know you never know what's going to come up. You just try to you try to be, be as best prepared for the monsters as you can. And then there's the whole RPG notion of leveling up, which happens as your deck gets stronger, which is which sort of happens in a deck building game. But but the fact that it's tied to, you know, a character, you know, fighting his way up the spire, it it all three of those things come together to create the most addictive game play I have ever experienced. And it's an early access. Yeah, which is a silly name. It's it's there. What what it means is the game's there. You can play it. It costs like sixteen bucks on Steam, and they're still refining the game. They're still adding features. That, you know, there's still lots of things that like, hey, we're not done with this yet. But it's a game. You can play it. So, What's the difference between early access and a public beta test? Well, this is clearly not in beta. Uh, they're they they are adding new game modes and new features and I think achievements and things like that that they haven't finished yet, but the game mode that is available is it is a it is a game. It is a fun game, it is a complete game. There aren't bugs really big bugs that they're working on. I think in the past month that I've played it, they've added a few things, they've they've tweaked the menus in anticipation of all the features they're adding. And they have fixed one or two bugs with the cards. Sort of normal for... But that's normal for an already released game on Steam these days. See, I uh, I just know there is a, a tier of games on the Xbox One um, and Xbox One X now that are in perpetual early access. I mean, they've been in early access for years. Um, and they their actual quote-unquote release date... I mean, your game has been released, people have bought it, and they've gone on and played it, and it's still not technically done. Uh, are, and are they hoping that at some point they will say, okay, now it's finally released, and they'll get this sudden rush of new people? The heat is off your game. Nobody cares anymore. There's been literally hundreds of new releases in the last two years. You're killing your momentum. Because all of the excitement you build up has been dissipated. And the only one I can think of right now is We Happy Few. Which everybody or a lot of people were all excited about because of that great first trailer. They were like, oh, this is kind of like Bioshock crossed with The Prisoner. You know, this kind of very, very British thing. And then it's been an early release. And I just keep on seeing. It and, release, and I keep on thinking I'm not paying $20 or $30 or $40, whatever the hell this is supposed to be. It wasn't ARC charging 40 bucks for quote-unquote early release. It just, it's ridiculous, and I think it kills your game. 
Yeah, it's a well, it's a good point. I think in the case of Slay the Spire, their their price point for now looks a little high. If you if you got it right now, you would say you first of all you would lose a whole weekend. I lost a whole weekend. I'm I'm not kidding. I played till the sun came up. Uh, which which speaks to its insidious uh, addictiveness. Uh, but you would say, you know what, this feels like a $10 game. This doesn't feel like a $16 game. But still, it's it's fairly cheap. So the price point is interesting. I think when they're finished with all the things that they want to have in the game, it will be a $16 game. But as far as excitement and exposure and everything, you may be right. Uh, but considering it was extremely popular i think a month ago it was very popular when i when i picked it up a lot of people were playing it online on twitch uh, it, it it rose to top 10 games played on twitch.tv uh, which is how it you know that that's how i noticed it i noticed it pop up on twitch and i said okay what is this and uh and when i saw that it was relatively inexpensive i thought i'd give it a shot and lost a weekend so they may still have done what was best for them. It may be if they had waited till everything was finished, they may not have been able to generate the buzz or revenue. But it'll be an interesting one to watch. Maybe when they're when they're finished, we'll find out. I know Gwent um, has been in a a beta uh, status, but beta is fortunately um, it, it's a it's a bit different than early access because. Uh, it's of limited duration, right? Ideally, a beta is like, okay, we're stressed, to, especially on multiplayer games on the Xbox. It's okay, we need to stress test the servers to see if they're going to scale for the load of how many players we expect or whatever is going on. Um, so that's that's a bit different than uh, just... Um, an early access game. So I'm still kind of interested in Gwent. I'm actually technically part of the beta, but I've only played it a couple of times in the uh, in uh, early, early on. Like the very first weekend it came out, I played it a couple of times. I wasn't really uh, enthused by it because it was just like playing the Gwent in the game, um, which had kind of a really shallow gameplay, but now they're they're having to change up a bunch of stuff in the gameplay, which is what I thought is, you know, if they're going to make a, a standalone version of this, they're going to have to change up a bunch of stuff in the gameplay uh, in order to make it really playable, really competitively playable. It's the same thing I was thinking about. Um, oh, what is the game from Knights of the Old Republic? Um, oh, wow, yeah. Pazak? Is that it? Pazak? Um, Pazak. Uh, would be fun to have as a standalone game, uh, either multiplayer or single player, but you'd have to change a lot about the game in order to make it, to balance it, to make it properly playable for um, for uh, a standalone game instead of being as, you know, because part of Pazak, part of the reason why it was balanced was in order to get the extra cards, in order to get the good cards, you had to go around to a bunch of different planets to the four hub worlds and either beat people or save your credits and buy them 
or you know i think maybe some of them you found as random treasure then you can finally build a pazak deck that would regularly win and you can't really do that as a standalone game so the questing element and, and it was the same with gwent in witcher 3 is the questing element served as a uh as sort of a balancing for everything that uh so that you couldn't just spam the best card in the game because the best card in the game you only have one copy of and you had to get it by you know playing to the top of some uh tournament or whatever so yeah for me the the most famous example was the one the card games in final fantasy in the playstation era final fantasy 8 had one of those things where the, the game wasn't that interesting but the best cards were done by playing against the most special characters in the world so you'd like you'd, you'd have this great cut scene where you meet someone really special like the president of the corporation and you're like instead of instead of talking to them or progressing the game you just stop and say hey hey do you want to play a card game with me <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Um, well, that's the show. Yep. We're out of here. Nope. No, I'm putting it off. I really am kind of putting it off because I've got my pages of notes here. I'm looking at it and I'm just thinking, man, I have to talk about a wrinkle in time. And it's kind of hard because it's not like there's all that deep. The movie isn't all that deep, and the commentary on it doesn't need to be all that deep. It's crap. What else am I going to say? The first, like, 20 minutes of the movie, I didn't take any notes because it was so cliched. If you've ever seen an episode of Boy Meets World or if you've ever seen Mean Girls or if you've ever seen any one of those whiny, bratty Disney Channel tween movies or TV shows about being in the seventh grade and how awful it is. That's what the first 20 minutes of the movie is. Oh, that's what I was afraid of. Um, and nobody, I just couldn't care. I couldn't bring myself to care. And I've read the book. I read the book a long, long time ago when I was in school and I was a young kid. It's a young adult book by Madeline Langle. And then uh, I read the book again sometime in the last couple of years. I don't remember how long ago, but sometime in the last couple of years, I read it again. And I was straining to try and remember the book as I was watching the movie because the movie and the book are only tangentially related. They're not, <laughs> this is not a movie of the book. This is a completely different movie. Uh, it's a movie from an alternate universe where Madeleine L'Engle, instead of being inspired by Christianity and her Episcopalian faith, had been inspired by social justice. So, in other words, it's a movie that is inherently, inevitably, inextricably worse than the source material in every single way because it's a massive downgrade from... Uh, you know, this touching, moving, vivid depiction of evil to whatever the hell is going on in this movie. Um, so after the first 20 minutes or so, or it might have been half an hour, my very first note 
This is the very first note of the movie. Because I wanted to remember this moment and discuss it on the show. And it's going to seem like a bunch of random words strung together. This is not a bunch of random words strung together. It is literally a description of something that happens in the movie. So the words I'm going to say, five words. Flying, lettuce, manta, ray, person. Flying, lettuce, manta, ray, person. Yes. At one point in the movie, one of the people turns into a flying, lettuce, manta, ray. Oh, that, that follows from... It, it, it is a manta ray made of lettuce that flies. Yeah, it's the lettuce that's really throwing me off here. It, it's green, it's vegetable-y, there are lettuce... It had to have been purposeful. There are lettuce-like leaves. Now, it's not an iceberg lettuce. It's not that green-yellow lettuce. It's a proper dark green lettuce. But it's quite definitely lettuce. I, I wish I was making this up. This is not something in a million years my mind would probably have ever come up with is to put into a story a flying lettuce manta ray person. Just, what the hell? That's, that's incredible. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't know if, if, if something like this was in the book. I'm worried now because I don't remember anything like this being in the book. And now I'm wondering if I just missed it. If I was not reading the book closely enough to have noticed a mention of a flying lettuce manta ray person. I, or if I have amnesia, if I got hit over the head at some point and just forgot in the last couple of years that there was a flying lettuce Manta ray person, I'm not sure. I I don't know. But that's the first note I took because it was so, at least to me, that seems odd. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe this is completely normal. Like it follows in the usual trend that has sprung up in recent movies, like zombie movies, right? You got a couple of good zombie movies, and all of a sudden, everybody was making them. Maybe I haven't noticed the trend of including flying lettuce manta ray people. Uh, maybe Groot started. I am Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy. Maybe he started a vast new movement of vegetable paste people in movies that I just haven't noticed yet. It's possible I, I think it's I, I what I think it is I think it is subtle uh, 
messaging from the agriculture industry trying to get more kids to eat their vegetables. They want they want little girls coming out of the theater after seeing a wrinkle in time with their moms saying, Mommy, can we go to the store and get some kale? I want some kale. I'm hungry. I'm actually thinking now, if I had been more introspective and less ticked off when I came out of the theater, um, I might have felt guilty. I went and saw two movies last night. The first one was A Wrinkle in Time. The second one was Hurricane Heist, which we'll talk about in just a bit. And in between them, I went and got a hamburger. And on my hamburger, I put pickles, tomato, and lettuce. Didn't even think about it. If I, if I had been more woke, if I had been more receptive, if I had been more empathetic to the universe, maybe I would have felt a brief moment of guilt at eradicating the life of a helpless lettuce person who might otherwise, had I not come along to cut their life short, they might otherwise have enjoyed a healthy, happy existence even today. They might be enjoying a healthy, happy existence bobbing along on the air currents on the north wind, gently drifting across the country. But I cut their life short brutally, cruelly, in order to have a hamburger. I did not think that, but now I'm thinking I should have been. I should have been more empathetic. Well, don't feel too guilty. Most lettuce suppliers grow their lettuce free range. So even though the life of uh, lettuce manta ray may have been cut short to provide you with a, a topping for your burger, know that it lived a full and enjoyable life as long as it was. Well, that, that makes me feel better. That assuages my guilt. So that's my first note. And I know that was taken about half an hour into the movie, maybe more. The second note was taken about two-thirds into the movie. Because there was so much material that I just didn't have to pay attention to. I could skip over all of that, the first two-thirds of the movie. And this note reads, The never-ending story did the nothing better. Have you seen The NeverEnding Story? Absolutely. And you remember the nothing? Sure. The dark storm clouds that terrain flew into as it consumed Fantasia, right? Yeah, very terrifying. They have a nothing in this movie. Only instead of being these big cloudy things, it's kind of a cyclone that tears up terrain and sucks it into the vortex and destroys it. And, and you remember that scene with Artax clinging on to the tree as all the terrain falls away around him? Yeah. They, they pretty much ripped that scene off in this movie. So, I'm not sure, I'm really not sure what it was 
that drove them to make the decision to rip off a 1984 movie, right? The never-ending story came out in 1984. So I'm going to ask our resident computer science major to do some rapid math. Okay. That was 34 years ago. Am I wrong? That's right. 34 years of improvement in special effects. And it looks worse and less convincing than the nothing. Plus, it's less threatening and less uh, ominous. If I could compare it to Jurassic World and the Dinosaurs TV show. You remember the little baby dinosaur who used to pound his fists on the high chair and yell, not the mama, and throw food? Oh, why did you remind me of that? Compare that in your memory to the Indomitus Rex from Jurassic World, that massive, huge, bigger than a Tyrannosaurus, bigger than everything else, super dinosaur, that was the nothing from NeverEnding Story, and the nothing from this movie is that little baby dinosaur pounding its fists petulantly on the high chair. Um, I, I found this movie boring painful, grotesquely divorced from the original material. Um, by the way, this nothing, the nothing in Fantasia dominated the whole movie in The NeverEnding Story. The nothing in this movie comes out of nowhere, does nothing, disappears back into nowhere. It is meaningless. It is just there as a bit of special effects... The movie is completely and utterly divorced from the source material to the point where I suspect that nobody involved in the movie had probably read the book or understood the book. I suspect they may have just consulted the Wikipedia entry about A Wrinkle in Time. So. I uh I, I want to talk about the themes of the book for just a second. And the book came out in 1960 something. I apologize um for not having that uh information precisely at my fingertips. It came out in 1962. Okay, so it is a young adult novel from before the counterculture, you know, broke big, from even before the very beginnings of what would be uh, the hippie era, um, which, by the way, was at a small camp in Wisconsin. Um, and it had as its core 
setting for the climax of the book. And, and I'm using this, by the way, telling you the year. It, I'm going to be spoiling part of the book and pointing out that it was published in 1962. So if you haven't read it yet, that's kind of your fault, okay? If you haven't read it in, what, 56 years, that's kind of your fault. You should expect spoilers, and you're just going to have to roll with it. So at one point in the book, they go to a planet called Kamazots. And there is, uh, the book is structured around the notion that there are many inhabited planets in the universe, many of them much like Earth, inhabited by human beings. Now, there are non-human creatures, but there are many planets, and many of them are inhabited by human beings. The human beings are fighting a spiritual war between light and darkness, between good and evil, and a lot of planets are living in the light and things there are good and peaceful and noble and decent. A lot of planets have fallen into the darkness and things there are bad and evil and wrong. Um, they call this, by the way, the black thing. That's the darkness. And they, Earth, our world is fighting off or, or fighting the influence of the black thing. It has, uh, it shadows our earth. There's a lot of evil, a lot of bad things on our world, but um, we're fighting it off. We haven't fallen in yet. Kamazots, Kamazots is the book, or is the planet that has fallen under the sway of the black thing entirely. So the kids go to the planet and find out that it is a rigidly, rigidly hyper-regimented society. All the boys and girls leave their houses at the same time. They bounce balls at the exact same time in the exact same rhythm so that you can hear the ball slapping the pavement, every ball in the neighborhood at the exact same time. Everything is done according to this rhythm. And mothers come out and get their kids and bring them in at the same time. One boy in this neighborhood bounces his ball wrong, out of time with everyone else. He can't get with the program. So they take him off to be regulated, to be, frankly, tortured, to put him back in step with society. Now, on this world, there's no crime, there's no hunger, there's no poverty, there's no war. But they've gotten to those things by giving up every single scintilla of their free will, every single scintilla of their moral agency, and given control of their lives to the mi most minute and detail of their entire lives is regimented and controlled by central, central intelligence, which is the head headquarters for the entire planet. Now, 
This is the core of the themes of the book. The chaos of real life with its good and bad versus the evil of absolutely hyper-regulated camisots. Now, and camisots, by the way, in the book is just one planet among many who have fallen to the black thing, fallen to the dominion of spiritual evil. The children come to this planet and have to rescue their father and bring him home. He's been missing for quite a long time. So let's go to the movie. And this is why my assertion is that the people who made the movie have never read the book, or if they did read it, they don't understand it. They land in a grain field a few moments or a few minutes after landing, they have a tearful goodbye with the three um, characters who are, in essence, guardian angels. They never say that. I don't believe they use that term. But that's what they are. Trees erupt from the ground suddenly, and they're suddenly in the middle of a forest. And one kid has disappeared. This never happens in the book. In fact, in the movie, they specifically say, don't get separated. Don't allow yourself to get separated. And the very first thing that happens is that these trees spring up out of nowhere and they get separated and can't do anything about it. They never had a choice. See, the important thing in the book is that all of the evil that comes to the characters, all the difficulties they face, are because they were forewarned of evil and made a wrong choice. One of the characters was warned against his pride, and he falls prey to his pride, makes a bad choice, bad things happen because of it. That is critical to the moral background of the book, choice. Well, this happens for no reason. No explanation whatsoever. This nothing, this big cyclone of destruction comes whirling in. The kids run away from it because it's scary. And then, and I swear this happens, they hide in a hollow tree trunk and the nothing comes along and the tree trunk gets sucked into it only instead of getting eaten up and destroyed like just about everything else, it actually throws them over this wall and towards the city. That's how stupid this is. They introduce this huge whirlwind that destroys everything that is so uber scary the kids are running away from it because everything gets sucked up into the whirling vortex. And then they get away from it by deliberately being sucked up into the whirling vortex. But somehow they're protected because they're in a hollowed out trunk stump of a dead tree. A dead tree. So. So that they found the fridge for when the town was going to get nuked. Yes. Yes. 
They found the fridge for when the town was going to get nuked. So they go to this subdivision that for a moment seems like they're following the book. And then it goes completely squampus from the book. Nothing, they're not doing really anything in sync after the ball bouncing scene. The mothers come out at different times, they say different things, and one of the mother notices the kids and invites them into the house to eat food. And you get this kind of Stephen King vibe from it. You know how Stephen King has the weird little town that he always goes back to that seems really normal on the surface, and uh. But underneath it, it's uh, always something evil that's going to do something bad to you. Yeah. That's what this comes across as. And as they're walking away from this subdivision, all the houses fold up and just disappear. And then they find themselves walking on a beach. And then they run and run and run because of things that happen on the beach and suddenly find themselves inside this giant ball-shaped room with lights all over it. And then because they put on the glasses, they see these. It's like a blueprint, only instead of it being white lines on blue paper, it's blue lines on white that... Through the glasses, you can see them. And so the girl walks up the stairs that are nothing more than drawings and walks up and, and, and goes to rescue the dad. The Kamazot morphs like it was a dream world, right? Like it was Inception. Which I love, by the way. It's a great movie. But the entire point of the book is that Kamazots is real. It really is exactly what it looks like. People of the same tech level with the same general society as our world who have fallen prey to this evil that strips away every single tiny moat of individuality and liberty and choice. And because of that, it's evil. That's the point. This is real. These are real people who are really suffering under the horrific thumb of a monstrous, literally a monstrous figure running this absolutely rigid, draconian, labyrinthine bureaucracy and kind of Kafkaesque in that sense. And it is what can happen just one way that evil can take hold of a society, that evil can come to dominate a society, and it is, in a certain sense, a warning. And fine, it's a metaphorical warning, but it's a warning about very real evils that existed in the world in 1962 and that exist today, whose point is to bring people into subjugation, to force them to obey, to rigidly inflict on them brutal punishments if they do not bend themselves and bend their lives like Procrustes' bed, where Procrustes was that evil monster in ancient legends who, if you laid down on his bed and you were too long, he chopped off your legs, and if you're too short, he stretched you on the rack. 
That's what this society does to people, metaphorically speaking. They stretch you or, or, or chop you short or force you into this mold, right? That is absolutely core and critical to the themes of the book, and this movie completely screws it all up. Absolutely, 100% screws it all up, and the entire movie was like that. Nothing in the movie followed the themes of the book at all, and that was the only reason to read the book. The only reason the book was worthwhile was because of the themes. Nothing else, because of the characters, because of people you could care about dealing with weighty issues, even though they were way too young. It's a very good book. It's a very well-done book. It's a young adult book, but I encourage everybody who listens to this show, at least, read it. I, I think you'll... Um, I think you'll like it, even if you're adult now, and so it's not young adult. This movie is a disaster. It simply does not um, does not show the book accurately at all. You, there's a way you could do it if you needed to mess around with the plot, mess around with the scenery, mess around with the characters, where you could still preserve the thematic moral core of the book. For example, um, there are lots of movies that present biopics and they change around specific events, but the themes and the emotions, like American Sniper, they have to change around a bunch of events, but the themes and emotions of it are, um, or The Blind Side, another great example, um, or the, the last uh, Mel Gibson-directed war movie, um, Heartbreak Ridge. Hacksaw um, Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge, yeah, apologies, um, where the themes of the events, where his character came through, but you change things around. Yeah, you could do that in adapting the book. They did not do that. They completely destroyed everything. So, um, and the last thing is, this is a tiny thing. I hate it. The main character Everybody worships her for no reason, and they stand around emotionally validating her all the time. Uh, I, I think at least five or six characters constantly tell her how awesome and uh, incredibly interesting, smartest, best person in the whole world she is for no reason. She doesn't ever do anything to make their faith in her like that justified. She's not a Mary Sue. But she has that a circle of adulation that is the hallmark of Mary Sue's in this movie. And it's, it's annoying as hell. Do we have any questions about the movie before we move on to the next one? Hi. That's all I needed to hear about A Wrinkle in Time. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in the chat. Oh, by the way, I should mention, folks, chat is now persistent. Um, it is now permanent, so all of the chat messages that get typed in will now be available in the future for anyone who watches this video on YouTube. The chat will be preserved in its entirety. So, uh, we're geeking out about GURPS in the chat. Okay. <laughs> um, but is there any questions? In, so there's no questions in the chat about A Wrinkle in Time. I can jump on to the next movie. No, we can move on. Okay. Um, oh, this next page is notes. 
Oh, yeah. One other thing. I, I want to say this because it pissed me off. The dad at the end of the movie says he went off to explore space. That's what he was doing. He was exploring 93 billion light years away or something, billion miles away, whatever it was. He was exploring the galaxy with the raw power of his mind using this thing called the Tesseract. Breaking barriers that have existed since before the human race, breaking barriers in a phenomenal way, exceeding the speed of light, literally walking the surface of planets that no human being has ever walked and developing a technique that anyone could do this. The most revolutionary, the most astounding, the most awesome discovery and breakthrough in the history of the human race and probably millions of worlds like this. He gets caught in a trap and the kids have to rescue him. And what he says at the end of the movie is, I wanted to shake hands with the universe, but I should have been at home holding your hand. Wow. Absolutely asinine. It is absolutely offensively asinine. Explorers, pathfinders, rangers, groundbreaking innovators are great people. And even if it costs them their lives, and even if it costs them their lives and causes their families grief, what they are doing is great, and the human race would not be where we are today. We would not enjoy the advantages we have. We would not have the knowledge we do were it not for great explorers. And this movie deliberately says that the emotions of a seventh grader are more important than the most important discovery that has ever been made in the history of mankind. I, I, I hated this movie at that moment. That's when I truly began to hate this movie. Is It is factuous. It is shallow. It is completely lacking in all moral sense and it absolutely eviscerates every single thing that made the book moving every single that made the book great we're down to almost an hour so i'm going to do this last one quickly it's a good thing because i can do it quickly it's hurricane heist and somebody said on twitter yesterday that they thought that uh, a wrinkle in time would be a bad movie but that a hurricane heist would be a good bad movie that is to say, it is not the most excellent movie you've ever seen, but it's a fun action movie, and I was really, really enjoying it for most of the beginning of the movie. Um, and it still is a pretty good action flick. It, it's a B-movie action flick, so don't go in expecting it to be the best movie you've ever seen, because it's not. It is uh, a cut above... Sharknado, it is not deliberately cheesy. It's a good, well-done movie that is imaginative in a lot of ways, that does a lot of things, that a few of which are reminiscent of Hard Rain from the 90s, if everybody has seen that. Um, but really um, amps it up. Instead of facing uh, heavy rain and, and whatever, you actually have an actual hurricane 
I found it a lot of fun. It was a little bit paint by numbers in that um, all the people, as soon as I saw them, I said, I think they're a bad guy. Every single one of them turned out to be a bad guy. So, uh, but I don't know that that would apply for everybody. It just applied for me. Um, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. It was a great palate cleanser after A Wrinkle in Time. Let me consult my notes. Um, fun, colorful, um, amusing. It's not pretentious. It's low budget, but it's not cheap. It doesn't look cheap. The performances are solid. Uh, they don't have any real A-list actors in it. The most recognizable actor that you would know is Maggie Grace, who is uh, played a blonde. Uh, she's blonde. She played a character on Lost, and she was also the president's daughter um, in the, uh, you know, <laughs> in the, uh, oh, she was uh, Liam Neeson's daughter in Taken. So if you've seen any of the Taken movies, you've seen her in Taken. Um, and uh, she, uh, in Lockout, the prison break movie in space she played the president's daughter um which is awesome by the way i enjoyed lockout uh and lockout is another um lockout is a little bit better than this movie i would say but this is still a fun movie i enjoyed it um one thing i was worried about was uh, i didn't go see it just because i was worried about the cheap effects i was worried that it was going to be sort of low budget computer animation how, how was it how were the effects I thought the effects are great. The, the effects in, like, say, Sharknado look bad because they're supposed to look bad. I thought this movie was very well done. I There were a couple of shots where I could say, oh, well, that was a miniature shot. But um, I, I thought they did a great job with the effects, um, personally. I enjoyed it. They didn't stick out as being obviously fake. Not like, you know, Superman's upper lip in uh, the Justice League movie. Uh, they did not look obviously fake. They looked good enough to accept. Uh, they didn't bother me. They didn't stand out and bother me. So that means that they were good enough to to use. So um, the main male character, you will only recognize him if you've seen um, the the uh, the recent King Kong Skull Island or Kong Skull Island movie. You remember? There's uh, you won't because we discussed this before the show, you haven't seen the movie, but um, people listening will remember there's one soldier who wanders off by himself for a long time in the movie who then um, gets uh, killed by himself. That actor, his name is uh, Toby Kebbell, was in this, he's the main character in this movie. He plays a meteorologist. Now, he's also done a lot of work. He did all the body work for King Kong. Um, the orc in the uh, Warcraft movie, the main orc, um, he did all the body work for that. And he did the acting for Koba in the first Planet of the Apes movie. Cool. Um, so he's done a lot of, uh, you know, acting. He just doesn't get on screen all the time. Um, and I thought he did a solid job in this movie. His character was fine. Um, 
I'm not trying to build this up to be more than it is. It was just a fun action movie. I had a fun time in it, and it reminded me how good non-pretentious movies can be, especially after that horrendously pretentious and yet at the same time utterly shallow piece of crap that uh, A Wrinkle in Time was. So I'd recommend going and seeing Hurricane Heist if you like action movies. Um, you're going to say, oh, this reminds me of a bunch of different movies. And it probably does. It reminds me of a, a, a several different movies. But it's a fun movie. It was enjoyable. Just kick back, enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I thought it was fun. I thought it was great. That's it. I, uh, well, that's that's better than I was hoping to hear. Oh, uh, it, it honestly looks like... I'm glad you mentioned Sharknado, because it looks like a sci-fi TV movie, to be honest. It, 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 it has a better script and a bigger budget. Um, and you can tell it they really wrestled with the budget, because it had like five different production companies uh, mentioned in the opening credits, which means they brought in money from a bunch of different places in order to get the movie made. But they, they spent a lot of money on practical effects. I mean, obviously, there were some scenes they had to shoot that were computerized, but they spent uh, that had to have been computerized. But they spent money to do a lot of things, a lot of things practically. Um, they're in a store at one point, and the storm surge comes and it blows away the glass on the front of the store and, and what pushes all these people off their feet and sweeps into the store. That was all done practically, it was done with water effects, not computer animation. Cool. Um, so they did a, they did, I think they did a good job at, at what they had. Um, there is one tiny sentence, a single sentence. I guess they just had to get it in of climate change propaganda, but it came and it went and it isn't important to the rest of the movie. They never mention it again. I think they just had it in there probably because an executive at one of the five companies they got funding from said, oh, well, you're making a movie about hurricanes in Gulfport, Alabama? Well, what have you heard about this climate change thing? We need to put that in there to make it, you know, to educate people, to, to raise their awareness of climate change. It's important. It needs to be in there. So they threw in a line about it, but it, it's not important in the movie. Well, that's good. I, I, I'm i tired of awareness being raised for just about anything these days. Yes. I, I am aware of everything. Thank you. I'm old. I grew up most of my adult life. I grew up here in America. I've had my awareness raised of everything. And the things I haven't had my awareness raised of yet, I don't necessarily want to know about. So I'm sorry. Um. But yeah, I would skip A Wrinkle in Time unless you really love the book and, and have a stunning need to raise your um, blood pressure for some reason. Um, and if you like fun action movies that are completely unpretentious, that are just there to have a fun time, you can go see Hurricane Heist. It's fun. Any last thoughts before we kick off? Uh, well, thanks for doing the show and... and Taking all the pain onto yourself, Daddy Warpig. <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks to guys in the cat ch in the chat, uh, chatting with Coyote Con about GURPS and uh, and everybody else. 
Uh, good times. Thanks for hanging out with us live. Um, by the way, folks, we did this an hour earlier than we have been. Normally we do this at 3 p.m. Eastern. We did this at 2 p.m. Eastern today. And generally speaking, uh, that's going to be our regular time going forward, at least for right now. So uh, we're moving the time of the show forward an hour because it's going to be more convenient for schedules going forward. So we will be back next week, um, 2 p.m. Eastern. Has uh, Now, admittedly, I haven't talked to him directly, and I don't think you've talked to him, to, to him directly, but has, uh, has John DeLaRose, is that confirmed now? Is that a confirmed, unconfirmed? Wait, yeah. We haven't confirmed yet, but but John Delarose wants to g jump on on the show, so we'll try and get him in for next week. Okay, um, and then uh, Jason Onspock, I've talked to, is going to get back to me on a good time. He just had a brand new kid, couldn't come on the show where we had Nick Cole on last time, but uh, but I talked to him again. He's uh, wants to come on the show, uh, you know, by himself. We'll talk about his career and and making Galaxy's Edge and stuff. So hopefully that'll be in the next month or so. Um, and the, that's it for right now. Uh, there's a book you're reading that I've just recently read that we might talk about later. Um, but we'll announce that when you actually get around to reading it instead of dancing the night away with beautiful women. Instead of doing that, if you get down to doing your job on the show and reading a book like, like, called dang it, like your contract promises. We'll get around to that at some point, I assume. Is, it, is that it? Have I forgotten anything? Mm, no. As always, plans are subject to change based on the vagaries of human beings and the Lord above because we can't control sometimes what goes on on this show. However, we did fix the loud squeal from last week, so uh, appreciate everyone who told us about that. This is Geek Gab. We're here going forward every Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. You can come watch us live, get involved in the chat, and your chats will be immortalized, immortalized on YouTube until we get banned and kicked off the platform for rampant wrong think. Or if you, uh, that's at youtube.com slash geekgab. Or if you want, you can catch us on the Google Play Store, on uh, SoundCloud.com, and on the iTunes Store. Just do a search for Geek Gab. You can subscribe to our show and uh, enjoy a landmark, groundbreaking, awesome podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, to uh, tuning in live, to join in the chat, listen to the show. We appreciated having all of you over, and we should be doing this again next week about the same time. We are leaving you for today, but don't worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.